You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. The Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network is brought to you by Onyx Hunt. Bringing you the best GPS mapping software directly to your smartphone or desktop, Onyx offers you the ability to see property boundaries, mark waypoints, track your location, and so much more. Visit onyxmaps.com or you can download it directly from your app store today. Save 20% off of your purchase by using the code NATION20 at checkout. That's capital N NATION followed by the number 20. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. All right, today I am getting ready for Satapalooza. The event is coming up this weekend, and basically all I need to do is just pack my stuff. Somehow i got to fit everything I'm going to bring down there into a single bow case, a carry-on, and a backpack. I think I can make it happen. But what I'll probably do is end up just packing like one climbing stick, the uh, rappel rope to be able to do the one stick and rappel method, and then obviously my bow, some arrows. Uh, as far as shafts, I'm bringing down a whole bunch of the new Vector custom gear shafts I'm going to uh, hopefully get a chance to shoot at a hog and also I got some of the new iron wheel wide cuts along with some of the sever 1.5s and the original or I guess the solid version iron wheels that I'll be bringing down there so should be a good time I'm really looking forward to once again seeing everybody you know with those type of events part of the the allure at least to me is that when I get down there all of these people that I talk to on Facebook or through text messages or messengers or whatnot, you get to see them face to face. And, you know, that's just about as exciting to me as actually, you know, getting to go out in the woods and, and doing some, you know, hog hunting, which is really quite foreign to me, uh, for living in Minnesota. The only other time I've done it is the last time I was at Satapalooza, which was two years ago, but looking forward a ton to seeing everybody again. There's a lot of rain, a lot of flooding, but you know, we'll make it work. I'll be recording at least one podcast down there, maybe a couple more. And then also I'm bringing down some of my cameras. I'm going to try and get some video content to be able to share for you guys as well. So really looking forward to that flight leaves in just a couple days. So let's get on to the, uh, the meat of the podcast here. 
what I want to talk about today is spring scouting in a little bit more detail. And for any of you who happen to catch the Wired to Hunt podcast that I was on, I talked a little bit about how I think that spring scouting specifically is kind of a complementary scouting. It's not the type of scouting that you would put all your eggs in one basket, but I also don't think it's totally worthless either. It's a system that is definitely integral to every place that I go. If I don't have the ability to spring scout, it's not the end of the world, but I definitely feel a lot more confident in locations that I have the opportunity to scout in the spring. And when I say spring, ideal time frame there is basically as soon as the snow is done melting. So that'll probably be a couple weeks here in Minnesota, but preferably at least in areas where there's a lot of water, it would still be a time frame when there's still ice enough to support your weight. And you can walk around and cover a lot of miles really quickly in terrain that during a lot of the hunting season is very hard to traverse just because it's so wet. So again, I really want to reiterate the purpose. It's a supplement to the other forms of scouting. And really the way I look at it, the way I try and frame it and actually act upon it is that I do boots on the ground in the spring, obviously. And then I also do aerial scouting in the spring. And you think, well, yeah, you do aerial scouting throughout the entire year. Of course. Yes, that is definitely true. So ultimately when I try and pick apart an area during the spring, I don't try and usually tackle the whole thing in one day. I don't try and tackle the whole thing in two days. I basically bite off as much as I can chew in one day and then go back to the maps, look at all the waypoints, look at that big picture view, and then decide what I want to look at next. It seems like inevitably, once I get back and look at all those big picture views, I see spots that I missed. I just overlooked. I look at you know the entire track that I did for the day, and I just see big holes in my pattern. And I try and you know get rid of as much of that as possible while I'm out there in the field. But sometimes you you just don't pick up on certain things. You overlook something, or you think something looks kind of insignificant. But then you go back and look at the big picture again, and it's like, man, that that there's probably a reason that's overlooked, and it could be really good. So I need to make a second trip and make sure I hit that particular spot or spots. But also, and especially in areas that are really large, looking at that big picture again, kind of gives you the ability to bite off only as much as you can chew for a given day. I might say, today I'm gonna tackle this region, you know, this little chunk, this you know, 10 mile loop or whatever. And then I basically cover as much as I can. And then I got that block off on the map and then I move my focus over to the next block. and that's a really a good way to, I guess, tackle some of these spots that are 5,000, 10,000 acres, even bigger, and not feel like you're just wandering aimlessly. Just take it a chunk at a time. Look at the, the big picture view on the map, pick out your locations that you want to hit, try and be efficient, get it all done in one day, and then move on to the next spot. And then once you got a whole bunch of that stuff done, you're, mapping software is just going to be littered with tracks and waypoints. But then based on that, you can fine tune and say, okay, out of all of this stuff that I just systematically worked through, now I want to go back to these particular areas after looking at the maps and then dive right back in and get even more detailed information. So I'll get into some specifics and just run through the you know, real world examples in just a second here. But first I kind of want to lay out a high level, what I'm looking for 
and how I make that initial plan before I go out on a daily loop. So essentially when I'm looking at the map before I go out, I am looking for potential betting spots. I am looking for potential pinch points. I am looking for potential food sources, which sometimes you can see on the map and it's pretty obvious and other times not. And I'm looking for edge. You know, if there was, if there was one thing that I could look at on a map to kind of summarize where I might, I might see a lot of these things in general, it would be edge. That's where I'll focus 90% of my time. Probably I find a lot of the betting on the edge. Edge controls some of those travel corridors and movement patterns. And then a lot of times edge can be, you know, a source of food. If you got an old opening, you got different sources of grasses and, and weeds and forbs growing there. You might find that in locations close to bedding, that's where the, you know, the oak trees that'll be getting hit most likely during daylight are going to be. And obviously, you know, if you're talking about like agriculture, well, a field edge is a really prime, easy example of a transition. So that's kind of at a high level what I'm looking for, regardless of what type of habitat I'm looking at. And that's kind of the plan. And that's how I try and basically most efficiently plan out a particular route for a given day. And a lot of times what I'll try and do is based on how hard this area is going to be to navigate and knowing historically how many miles I can go in that type of habitat in one day, I'll start to plan my route. And if I know I can go say 10 miles in a given day in a habitat and just working through it, I might draw a route on Onyx that's like six miles or something like that. Because typically what happens is when you're drawing the map or when you're drawing that route on the map, you end up drawing mostly straight lines. But in reality, you're really zigzagging and looking at this, looking at that. And by the time you add all that up, it adds in a couple additional miles. So definitely don't try and, you know, plan out a route that you can, that you're not going to be able to fully tackle in a day. If you plan out 10 miles, it might turn into, you know, 13, 14 pretty easily. So you got to keep all that in mind, but let's try and go into some specific examples. So here's what my wife, Sam and I are going to be doing for all of the States that we're going to be doing some of the spring scouting in. And again, we haven't really started much of it yet. We still got enough snow on the ground that if we're going to do some of our scouting now, yeah, sure. We might be able to get some good information, but also a lot of the sign from last fall is going to be, you know, hidden and it's really going to be telling us at least the, the most recent information is going to be telling us what the deer are obviously doing right now, not necessarily what they'd be doing in September or in November, for example. So let's start off with the first state, which is going to be our home state of Minnesota. And a lot of what we hunted last year in Minnesota was your, you know, very typical cattail marsh type habitat, same type of stuff that, you know, Dan Infall talks a lot about in his home area of Southern Wisconsin. We have some of that very similar habitat type here in central Minnesota. So we got a lot of it really close to home. I mean, tens and tens and thousands of acres not too far outside of Minneapolis. You can find public ground with this kind of habitat. That's what we scout a lot. That's what we hunt a lot. And there's, I guess as a primer, if you want to obviously learn more about that specific type of habitat and what to look for, watching some of the, the marsh bedding and swamp bedding DVDs from the hunting beast are going to be really good primers and kind of learning what to look for in that type of habitat. But basically what we'll do is we know from example or from past experience that the amount of distance that can be traveled in that type of habitat, at least for me, 
usually tops out at about, about 10 miles, I'd say is a good day. You know, if I have less time, if I don't have a full day to be out in the woods, then I might try and truncate it and make it a little bit less. Oftentimes I find that when I want to draw a route, I might draw a route for say four miles, you know, straight line, just kind of connecting islands and points and all that kind of stuff. And then when I actually do that loop, especially in marsh country, especially when the water is frozen, that little loop that was four miles could easily turn into like eight or nine, just because when I'm drawing the route, it's basically a straight line. And when I get out there, I might be doing a loop around the entire transition of a certain island rather than just cutting right through the center. Uh, like I said, there's edge is key. And in that type of habitat, you got a lot of cattails. You got a lot of uh, just like open marsh, like wire grass or whatever they call it. And you obviously have hardwoods. And then you have dogwood. And like there's a whole bunch of different types and styles of edge. And, you know, it kind of reminds me of if you are a fisherman and you like to fish the shorelines, for example. Well, if you just got a totally round, you know, bowl-shaped lake, there's only so much shoreline on that lake. But then you look at a lake that has a whole bunch of like, uh, like a reservoir where they just got fingers everywhere. You got so much more shoreline to be able to work with, even within a given area. And when I look at a, a cattail marsh that has a lot of islands in it, a lot of points, a lot of bowls, that all equals up to a whole bunch of edge. And so I want to be able to walk as much of that edge as possible. And I won't even spend too much time walking through solid woods. And I won't be spending too much time walking through open marsh, except to walk from edge to edge, basically. So that's kind of the real basic strategy, just by walking the edge and that type of habitat, I'm going to, you know, no doubt find bedding. I am going to no doubt find food sources. I'm going to find which food sources potentially are closest to bedding. I'm also going to find travel corridors and the travel corridors in that type of habitat tend to be ones that connect islands from one to another. They connect small areas of brush or small little, you know, tamarack stands and things like that to other islands, connect them to mainland. And sometimes you'll find those trails just cutting right into um, just a, a real big block of timber. And when I say like mainland, that means like a big block of timber typically, as opposed to a smaller chunk of timber that's in the, out in the marsh, which I would refer to as an island. Some of these islands are going to be round. Some of them are going to have little points and fingers and bowls in and of themselves. So even on a small little island, there's a lot of walking that I could do. There's a lot of learning I could do. And I might spend an hour on just one island. So again, it's really important to be able to truncate the initial plan and then just bite off a small portion and really pick it apart on one specific day and then go back in on another day and learn a little bit more, get a little bit uh, more detail on a different area, systematically work through some of those bigger marshes. And then at the end of, you know, five, six, seven, whatever scouting trips, that are full day trips go back, look at all the notes, look at the big picture and say, okay, area two, four, and six had the best sign, had the best big buck sign, uh, had a lot of deer sign in general, but those particular days, I could have definitely gotten more detail. There was a couple of spots that I wanted to check out, never quite got the time. 
Well, now's a chance to go back and refine those certain areas so that you can get that additional detail because what you've also essentially done at that point is you've effectively eliminated area that you don't want to waste time in during that fall. What it seems like I find a lot of is I find a lot of very similar habitat, but some will be better than others. So I would fully expect to find this spring certain points, certain islands that just have more big buck sign on them. Maybe they have more deer sign in general, but they don't have a lot of big buck sign. Maybe they're cold. Maybe they don't have a lot of sign. It's very common for me to walk through a large, vast area, spend an entire day, get back to the truck and think, well, you know, that wasn't super great. There's nothing that really stood out to me. And then I can not necessarily feel dejected for not finding a whole bunch of stuff because I've effectively said, well, I know there's a lot better stuff out there. So I've eliminated this particular chunk. We hunted an area last year where I did not have a lot of postseason scouting and effectively I just had to look at the maps and go based off of sign that I uh, found during in-season scouting. Uh, with my wife, it was the same. It was her first season hunting. And at first, basically every hunt that I took her out on, I would kind of show her the onyx and say, Hey, here's where we're going to go today. Here's why, here's where I think the deer are bedding. And then here's where I think the food sources are as we would walk into that spot. Okay. Now we got to slow down. We're getting a little bit closer. Got to be more calculated. I would be able to point out like these trees are, you know, white oaks. These are red oaks. Uh, you can see there's, you know, various types of deer sign. This looks fresh. This looks old, all that kind of stuff as we would get closer and closer into those particular areas. But then as we got to basically the, you know, the hunt spots are itself where we we're going to hang our saddle platforms and actually hunt from, you really just had your fingers crossed. You know, it was like, we knew that the deer sign said that we were in the right spot and from being able to hunt those types of spots historically knew that it was probably the best type of area to set up, but we never really had the experience of going back to the next, you know, deepest spot in to be able to confirm exactly where some of those deer were bedding on one of the hunts that, uh, I filmed my wife on and we haven't posted this video yet on YouTube. Uh, we might, might do it at some point, but we got into this area and it was actually based on Sam picking a spot on the map and saying, well, what about this spot? Would this be good based off of something that I had also showed her that was a really good spot. And I confirmed that it was a good spot. And I was like, yeah, that'd probably be a pretty good spot. So we walked in there based on her, you know, inquisitive hunch and picked a spot and ended up having, uh, I would assume it might've been a two and a half is it's probably a two and a half year old deer. Um, buck that walked within 15 yards of us. We just never quite got a shot opportunity. So now that particular area, we can go back into spring scouting and say, we know there's food there. We know that deer obviously used it the way we intended, you know, that they would use it or that we thought that they would use it. Now we can take that next step in, go a little bit deeper and actually find the beds and see how far away they are and see what those deer can see from their beds and be able to most effectively pick a the best tree, whether or not we were in the best tree or not, it's tough to say, but do going back in there and finding that in the spring. Now we can really pinpoint it. Some of this, I also did last fall during the shotgun season in Minnesota. There was an area that I basically, uh, it was, it was such hot sign that I was on and I had 
three consecutive hunts where it was just, I would see, I've seen deer every sit. The bucks were, it was late, late October. The bucks were moving. They were grunting, starting to chase each other around. And there was, there were big rubs, big tracks. I knew that I was getting, I knew that there was deer there, deer there that were bigger than the ones that I was seeing. And so I was, you know, each sit getting a little bit tighter in to try and get close enough to where I would finally see one of those bigger deer that were back there. And then of course, you know, our third day I ran out of time, had to go back to work for the week by the time I, and then we uh, went to Missouri. So then I didn't even get to hunt the following weekend, came back like four or five days later, the spot was totally cold. Uh, I saw a couple does during that shotgun season when I came back, but as I walked around, I got down during the, uh, the shotgun season about midday and just did some of the scouting because I had more confidence in the knowledge I'd be able to learn with no snow on the ground. The marsh was frozen so I could walk. So I was effectively during that time of the year, finding the same type of sign that I would hope to find during postseason scouting, during spring scouting. I was just doing it at a different time of the year. I was basically giving up a hunting day, but the type of information I was trying to find was exactly the same. I was trying to figure out if I only had one day to be back here, where is the spot to be? Where are these deer bedding? Where's the sign? You know, all the, all the big tracks and some of these bigger rubs. Where, if I mark all these things as I find them, plug them in the map, and then go back and look at the big picture, figure out which ones are the ones that some of those bigger deer are using, maybe what wind direction could they be using them on. Maybe it's a non-wind specific bed and just get that all figured out so that when I go back in there and hunt and I see the sign, I know exactly how to set up on it. That's really the overall strategy with kind of this marsh stuff in a nutshell. I'm looking for white oaks, especially during September. I'm also keeping an eye on where the red oaks are because obviously once the white oaks are done, those red oaks are still dropping acorns and I'm looking for bedding. I'm looking for travel corridors between the two. And to a lesser extent, I don't, you know, I really don't hunt the, um, the rot too much. I mean, obviously I do a little bit in marsh country, but I'm also that time of year, you know, like I've, I started traveling more during the rot Missouri last year. I uh, did some more Wisconsin hunting during the rut. So I really like to try and hit up that habitat more in the early season. So now we covered marsh. I, I don't want to really go on too much in more detail about that. Let's talk about farm country scouting in North Dakota and what our plan is there. So with North Dakota, it's one of those states that before I ever took a trip out there, all I had was just kind of the onyx scouting because I had not had the uh, timing or luxury of being able to just drive out there and take a scouting day or scouting weekend. So when I went out there with Shane last year, neither one of us had ever stepped foot on the land that we were at. So it was kind of, you know, once again, using the in-season scouting and just kind of making plays as we go. But now having hunted it and learned what we learned hunting there last year, I'm planning on going back there, take my wife with me. We're going to take either a day or two, haven't figured that part out yet, but we're going to go back into that area and pick apart some of those areas that Shane and I really wanted to dive in and learn more about so that once again, by the time we come back the following year, we have figured out not only where there's a lot of deer sign, but based on the deer sign we did see, what was the best opportunity to really capitalize on it in the first set. So most of this area is farm. There's some hills, there's some, you know, 
swampy type stuff. There's kind of big, big woods habitat. It's just kind of a mixture of a whole bunch of stuff. But if I had to say it was more one thing than the other, I would say it's more farm country. And the particular area that I uh, shot my buck in was farm country that was kind of intermixed and next to kind of swampier big woods type habitat. And the, and when, again, when I say big woods, I'm not talking about, you know, a 15,000 block of unbroken timber. I'm talking about the type of habitat that I would normally otherwise find in that big 15,000 block of timber where it's, you know, a bunch of aspen trees and, you know, ferns and, um, some conifers, maples, basically the habitat when you look around makes it look kind of like Northern central Minnesota, right? That's kind of how I would describe it. And that's when I say big woods habitat, a lot of times I mean what it looks like on the ground more so than, you know, the overall big picture, small picture, you get dropped into it from a helicopter. What does it look like? It looks like big woods. Okay. So that's kind of what I, I mean here. You know, it's that type of habitat interspersed with fields. And there's definitely a lot more fields, I would say, than woods. It's just that that's what the woods look like when you were in them. And the place that Shane shot his buck was a little bit more hilly. Uh, so it was, you know, kind of the, the farm fields, but closer by was more more similar to hill country than um, than either big woods or marsh. There really wasn't much marsh out there, but it was very mild hill country. So what my plan is, number one, in the area that I killed my buck, when we went in there, I had made an educated guess based on where the deer might be bedding, and we had a pretty good idea of what they were feeding on. So now, when I go back there, my wife and I are going to just pick that area apart. We're going to go deep into where that kind of swamp edge was, and we will look for beds. We will look for big rubs. We will look for tracks. We will look for how the deer are moving from that bedding you know, area to those fields. If the same food source is present, I would safely assume and hope that the deer would use that area the same. And obviously if the food sources were changed, if, if instead of a, you know, a nice green field kind of alfalfa was not growing in that particular spot that year, but maybe it was only just the oaks in that spot, then obviously I would expect a shift. And hopefully based on that additional knowledge from the postseason scouting, we'd be able to, again, pick up on that and hunt it most effectively. You know, it's possible that we go back in there and I find a spot that we say, hey, you know, there isn't as much deer sign here, but there's bigger buck sign here. Maybe it's more overlooked. Uh, there wasn't a ton of hunting pressure. I didn't feel like when we were there, but maybe the spot that we picked was the best spot in the area. Obviously it turned out pretty well. Maybe there's a better spot. And just by kind of taking a three or four day trip, it's really tough to, to see everything, right? You're making guesses, you're, you're taking your best estimates, but I just want more information and I want to have more confidence so that when we find that sign next year, and if it's the same, then we say, Hey, we go back and hunt the same tree even, right? Or maybe we say, Hey, the sign's the same. And we hunted this tree last year and it worked out for us. But now we know that if we go in, you know, 150 yards into this spot, it's going to be even better. And if the, the sign is differently, we still know how to basically make the play. With that habitat being a little bit flatter and with the edge being different than it is in the marsh country I described previously, the edge there is farm field versus dry woods versus wet woods. 
and I guess there's creek bottoms and, and little streams and stuff like that that kind of break it up as well. But those are kind of the, the general transition types there. So if I want to look at a particular block, I could say, okay, I'm going to walk this entire field edge if it's, you know, public and I have access to walk there. Minnesota or North Dakota, of course, has that rule. If it's not posted, you, there's not, the trespass law is different uh, than a lot of places. So you can walk on a place as long as it's not posted. They've been talking about potentially changing that, but to the best of my knowledge, it still hasn't been changed yet. So we could go out there, maybe we'll even find a shed, right? Uh, but ultimately any sign that we find that's fresh on those fields and those field edges, I'm not going to take too much stock in, uh, just going to be kind of looking for really big picture. Like just as if I were to have a trail camera on that field edge, just to kind of get an inventory, I might not plan on actually hunting there, but just trying to see what type of sign I see to give me an indication of what's overall in that area. And then as I continue those type of loops, I would effectively work my way from some of those field edges back to some of those swamp edges. And these are more wooded type swamps. You can tell a difference between the dry ground and the wet ground. If you look at a, a map, it just looks a little bit different. It looks a little bit uh, like the tree type is different. So it's hard to describe. It looks a little bit darker almost on the aerial maps. Obviously, if you look at the topos, you might get a couple lines that are a little bit lower to indicate that it's a lower ground. But it's pretty easy to still pick out those transition lines and that's the other basic, basic line that I would walk. And there's not going to be as much micro detail, I think, in this type of habitat than there is with the, the marsh country. So if I pick out a particular route, I might say, hey, we're going to do this eight miles today. And maybe that eight miles will turn into nine or ten. But it's not going to turn into like 15 or 16. Just because a lot of those edges are a little bit more clearly defined. And if I want to spend more time there, it's probably going to be time spent after I find, you know, one or two really good dynamite kill spots, just getting them prepped um, and being able to figure out exactly what tree we're going to set up in, how we're going to uh, set each person, whether it's, you know, Sam hunting, me filming, Shane hunting, whatever the situation is, how we would set up there so that there's no discussion basically on the day of the hunt. We just get in there. We find the sign. We say, okay, we know what we're going to do. We got a plan and let's go execute. In terms of the food sources, we obviously know that the green fields in that early September seem to be, in our experience, hotter that trip, especially than any other food sources that we saw there it was better than the canola, better than the uh, corn, better than the sunflowers, better than soybeans. It was basically, if, if you had an alfalfa field that was green, that was really, it seemed like what the deer were hitting hard. And then they were also hitting acorn, acorns hard. There's a lot of bur oaks in the area that we were at. So in addition to kind of looking at those field edges and just kind of making some assumptions, because obviously we don't know 100% what's going to grow in any given field, the oak tree should be a pretty solid indicator of, well, at least there's this in this particular area. So apart from the field edges, that'd be the one thing that I would kind of key in on would be some of those big oak trees that could be dropping acorns in the early fall. Two more areas, both in Wisconsin, both different habitat types that we're going to additionally scout this spring. One of them is going to be hill country. And this particular area of hill country has a lot of riverside type hills in it. 
as opposed to if you get kind of like the driftless region of say southwest wisconsin southeast minnesota you get some of these you know light creeks and stuff like that but not as many rivers that the hills will back up to and so what i found is that the deer don't use them always 100 percent the same they'll use a lot of this uh similar uh, type of movement patterns but especially when you get some of these bottom areas that are bordering up against a larger you know river or creek they don't use it quite the same as they would if you know that particular valley just went right up to another set of hills on the opposite side of that valley that type of habitat for me has been really tough to have a lot of success early season on older deer we'll definitely have a lot of good opportunities at you know younger deer um, does fawns moving around like all that kind of stuff uh, but i haven't myself had a lot of success either seeing big deer early season out there or even kind of pinpointing their movements on trail cameras it's been extremely sporadic you know you might you might have deer coming through at 11 a.m going one direction one day you think you got an idea of where they might be betting and then the next day at 6 p.m. they're going the you know totally opposite direction and you think okay well it, it just seems very random and I think part of the reason is in some of these hill country places that we hunt there are oak trees absolutely everywhere and if you get a really large bumper crop of acorns they can be so spread out and I think they just in the the constant presence of food where they have kind of that security cover I think they move around a lot more which you know almost means that you could be out there in the early season a little bit more often um you bump you you have the opportunity to bump more deer early season so what i'm trying to get at is we're not going to do a lot of our postseason scouting in this hill country to try and find and set up on you know early season or late season sign what we're going to try and do is focus our efforts more on the rut and firearms stands and that means terrain funnels which in hill country like this is going to be steep cuts. And these are things we can find once again on the map and kind of pinpoint and pick out an area. It's going to be those, um, those big steep ravines that deer's going to have to cross around the steeper, the better because you'll find a lot of times just kind of worn into the dirt, a trail going up around the top edge of those saddles are pretty classic. And this type of hill country, there's not a ton of saddles there, but anytime we do find one, we're definitely going to still take a look at it. We also obviously have thermal hubs and those thermal hubs oftentimes will be next to some kind of creek or river. So if a deer drops down from one point into that type of location, he basically can have all the thermals dropping down to that location. But then on his backside, there might be water. It might not be other sets of hills that he can also gather scent from. And I found that it doesn't seem like there's as much activity in those type of hub areas as i see in some other type of hill country areas that are you know more i guess typical or textbook like if you were to pick up a you know a mapping hill country bucks for example and so i might find two three scrapes in those bottom type areas but a lot of times i'll also still find a lot of sign up higher in those hills so i'll go ahead and check all those hub areas we don't have a lot of converging hubs up on high ground. You'll, you know, oftentimes have the low hubs and you'll have the high hubs and they look the same on the map. It's just one that's low ground and one's high ground. 
where you basically have a bunch of points that all drop into a, a certain area. That would be a kind of like a, a bottom thermal hub. And then if you have basically where all your ridge tops kind of meet at the highest point in the center, that would be kind of your, your high ground hub. And we don't have a ton of those. Usually where those do occur are wide out or wide open in the fields uh, on private agriculture that you don't have usually access to anyway. So it's definitely all around pinch points. Inside edges, inside corners of fields where a deer is going to have to basically walk around that corner of the field in order to stay hidden. That's going to be a place we're going to look, especially if it also meets up to one of those steep cuts, that can be a really good potential funnel because you basically have two of those, uh, key funneling type features in one spot. In some areas we have bluffs and I oftentimes find that those bluffs can be really good at funneling deer. I also find that if you have any gaps in the bluffs, those are, those can be also extremely good pinch points because those deer will just walk along the top edge of those bluffs. And as soon as you have some kind of break where you have a cut in the rock and a deer can maneuver its way down, even if this hill is pretty steep, as long as it's not vertical, they might still use that. If they want to be able to get to lower ground, you can really learn to key off key in on that. And I used to find those a lot when I would basically try and find a route to the top of a particular hill. And, you know, in Southeast Minnesota, we used to scout and hunt that particular area. We would find that if you started at the base of a hill, you get up to a certain point, maybe 80, 90% up to the top and you'd get bluffed out and it would just be vertical. In fact, if you watch the public land challenge videos, uh, when Aaron and I were hunting on the you know, first or second day and we were just walking along with that bluff wall to the one side of us, you'll get some areas that are like that. And you basically can't, there's, there's no way you can get up on top of them without, you know, rock climbing. So you just keep walking along the base of those bluffs and then eventually you find a gap in them. And it seems like every time I find a gap and just walk up to get to the top of that hill, there'd be a lot of deer sign, sometimes beds right there. So definitely key in on those type of things. And definitely, you know, I like to key in on, like I said, those steep cuts, things that, you know, we're going to be able to uh, force the deer to go through a particular area. I like the hard funnels more so than the soft funnels. If you have uh, say a saddle or you have a, a light ravine, that's not steep enough to force the deer through a particular area. I find that, uh, they don't use those type of, um, they don't use those type of funnels quite as much. And if they do, you're not necessarily guaranteed that they're going to use it exactly like you intend. Maybe, they're used to people hunting over those particular types of funnels and they'll just kind of skirt around the, you know, quote unquote best spot that you think you should be in. Whereas if you have a hard funnel, it doesn't matter. Uh, they're either going to walk through it or they're not. And they, if they're going to walk through it, they have to go through a particular spot. So when we scout our hill country stuff in Wisconsin, that's really what we're going to be trying to key in on. The last habitat type that we're going to scout this spring in Wisconsin is your, you know, typical big woods type habitat, uh, big woods in Northern, you know, kind of, I guess for us, it'd be Northwestern Wisconsin. You got mostly flat area. You got some rolling Hills. It's not steep. There's no bluffs or anything like that. You get some marsh and swamp, but it's not the same as that cattail marsh that we have in, uh, around the twin cities in Minneapolis. It's more of your uh, hardwood type swamp where you got, you know, cedars or tamaracks, uh, or just kind of, you know, open bog. 
it's definitely different and the deer will use it a little bit differently, but you'll find also that there's a lot of similarities. So when I scout those types of areas, a lot of times I don't, I don't waste a lot of time up in the hardwoods themselves, just kind of covering ground. You can look at a topo map and be able to find things like saddles, be able to find uh, things like, you know, leeward benches and things like that. But oftentimes in those light rolling hills, again, I find that it's just not, not always steep enough to really force the deer to move through a certain area. And oftentimes too, when I'm looking at this particular area, I will gravitate more towards the swamps because the edge is easier to find. I can more effectively focus on just scouting that, you know, edge habitat. And if I can find food close to that edge habitat, then I can be able to cover a particular transition line and maybe on one side and find bedding on the other side and find the closest food and then be able to pick, you know, basically an ambush point from there. So at a high level, a lot of it is very similar to how I would intend on uh, scouting and hunting some of that marsh uh, country habitat and some of this the big woods type stuff in uh, Wisconsin, you'll get creeks and little ponds and things like that. So if you have uh, a creek, and I'm thinking of one place in particular, you have the ability to use a kayak to get into certain spots. And a lot of a lot of times you, you're going to have most of your other hunting pressure, if there is any hunting pressure during like archery season, coming in from access roads and parking lots where they have maybe a trail system cut out for grouse hunting. And I basically just kind of ignore most of that stuff. I might use those type of trails to get me maybe 80% of a given route. And then I'll just cut off and bushwhack it to the spot that I'm going to pre-scout and get into. So you guys might remember I posted a YouTube video last spring where I hunted a, a particular spot. It looked like mostly or mostly swamp in that video. And I found a, a nice shed as I was posting that video or recording it. But I would consider that more of a big woods type of area because of the greater ecosystem that surrounded that. And a lot of that footage that I took that day made it look like I was mostly in, you know, marsh or swamp type habitat. But that's just because I was focusing on the edge that was in that particular area. Now, a couple of people had posted a message me about, you know, had I gone back into that spot and tried hunting it. The only time I went back in there this year was during the opening day of rifle season. And, uh, this spot got hit by a tornado and it just, it just leveled so much out there. And even getting back a mile and, uh, actually just about a mile even from the parking lot during that rifle season was brutal. It was already, uh, cracking daylight by the time I had made that first mile. And I was intending on going another, an additional mile, uh, to be able to get back to that swamp edge. And I just, it was, it was nuts. Um, there was aspen trees down everywhere, maples down everywhere, oak trees, a lot of oak trees had fallen. Uh, every time we had a big white pine, almost a hundred percent of them were on the ground. And it was just a nightmare jungle to be able to navigate through. Interestingly, what I did find is that despite how hard it was to walk and crawl through a lot of that stuff, there was still deer sign in a lot of it. And especially in some of that area where I had basically planned on going, 
where it was, you know, a couple miles back from the, the vehicle in this particular scenario, closer to that transition, I did make my way back there basically around noon and just, you know, walked a two mile loop before coming back to the truck. But, uh, I found a lot of deer sign concentrated on that edge. What I found was that the tornado didn't affect the trees in the swamp as much as it did on the high ground. I don't know if it was just the, uh, the ground being a little bit softer, spongier, the root systems being different, being able to absorb the wind a little bit better. Maybe it had to do with the fact that some of those evergreen trees out in the, the hardwood swamp, the wind could cut through them a little bit easier. You know, they're shaped like a cone, obviously, as opposed to, you know, say like an oak tree with all its leaves. So whatever the reason was, they held up a lot better. And so when I go back in there that's this spring and re-scout that area, because basically the scouting I did last year was, I got to redo it. Like it, everything changed so much. Um, I'm just going to focus on those edges and I'm going to ignore probably entirely the hardwoods as a whole, because number one, it's almost impossible to navigate the impossible, not impossible. You know what I mean? To get a deer out if I did shoot one back there. And it seemed like a lot of the, the big deer sign, a lot of the deer sign in general was on that edge and in the swamp. So that's for sure where I'm going to focus 99% of my efforts when I go back there this spring. In some of these areas, we're also going to put out trail cameras when we go out and do some of the spring scouting. I definitely don't want to put any out right away, but the plan is if we go through, get some of our initial scouting days done, go back, look at the big picture, and then re-hone in on the stuff that we want to take a deeper dive into, that's when we would come back and bring in the um, either the pruning shears for some of the places that we're allowed to, uh, bring in sticks, and just try and prep trees to be able to to get ready to hunt this coming fall and then also be able to drop in some cameras with, you know, say solar panels on them so that they can last out there, you know, quite a bit. Uh, I might, I got a couple cell cameras now. Um, I got a couple renders. I had a couple spy point links, uh, that I had bought and one of them had given me issues and then it started working again somehow. And then the other one started giving me issues this year, stopped taking pictures at night. So, I'll try and get those maybe figured out or, or warranted somehow. But in some of these areas, especially like in Wisconsin, you know, if I'm leaving a trail camera out there, it's like for me to go put them where I want to put them, I'm not going to be able to effectively check them because it's just, I'm too, I'm spread too thin. I can't, I can't take the additional time to be able to go make a loop. It you know, takes three quarters of a day just to make a loop to check some of those trail cameras. So I'd rather put them in areas where, you know, I can just get the information, um, so that I can say, Hey, uh, I'm not gonna be able to make a game time decision on this, but if I am able to collect information over the summer, um, and kind of learn some of these things, then I'll be able to, uh, more effectively go in there during the fall and know if certain things are hotter, if they're not, uh, and be able to also get inventory. Some of the areas that are closer to home, We'll of course use uh, more standard type trail cameras and just put them in spots where they hopefully won't get stolen, but they'll be quick and easy to go check. And then there's some places that we can't even put trail cameras out because it's just not legal in those particular types of land. So ultimately that's going to be the plan for us for spring scouting this year. Hopefully between kind of the high level overview of how I tackle spring scouting in the first you know several minutes of this podcast and then dive into detail in some of those, you know, specific habitat types that I hunt throughout a given 
year. Hopefully that sheds some light and helps answer some questions that some people have on number one, what to look for, but also kind of how to, how to tackle it logistically. So if you have any additional questions, reach out to me on messenger, uh, you know, Facebook, Instagram, send me an email. And then before the recording is over, I just want to give a couple quick plugs. If you're going to be using either the uh, fobs for your arrows, code DIY10 for 10% off. And then similarly with the Vector Custom Shop, uh, I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, they make micro diameter arrows, thick walled, and they come stock with ethics components and they basically build them to whatever specs you want to build them to. So I'll have a code DIY10 for those as well. And I've been doing a lot of testing with them, shooting them at the range, doing bear shaft stuff that I'll be able to share in video format once that's all complete. Hopefully I'll be able to uh, shoot a pig with them too and just kind of give that overall feedback. That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content from Bobby Boswell or myself, subscribe to DIY Sportsman and Boudreaux Boswell on YouTube. And with that, thanks for listening.